All right, HTR present host Josh Lizard Guy Ortiz and Wildman JD Hartzell. Here are just a few of our sponsors. ZillaRules.com, great products for reptiles and amphibians to keep them healthy and happy. Reptiles by Science, specializing in high-quality, rare, and uncommon monitor species and iguanas. Innovative ectotherms, specializing in chuckawalla morphs, collared lizards. Check them out on Facebook. Okay, everybody, coldbloodedcafe.com. If you go to their website and you use the code HTR5 on their website, you get a 5% discount. Don't forget they have great prices online, nationwide, flat rate shipping. All right, I just want to put this out there. Don't forget to support your U.S. ARC. They fight for us to keep the herps. Tropical Reptiles and Exotics, specializing some of the best-looking tegus around. Tegu morphs available, and check them out on the Facebook. Look for the albino tegus in their profile pictures. And be sure to check out the Reptile Report. Everything on information for the herps from around the world. TheReptileReport.com Visit SimContainer on Instagram and SimContainer.com for egg incubation boxes. Be sure to check out the awesome captive bred monitors such as Philippine Water Monitor and Aki's, simcontainer.com. Herpetofauna by Josh Ortiz, specializing in tegu water monitors, Australian water dragons, lacertas, and many more. Herpetofauna by joshortiz.com. Welcome, everybody. It's Tuesday, and it's Lizard Hour. I'm with my uh, co-host, Josh Ortiz. Josh, what's going on down there? I see a lot of a lot of python eggs now and a lot of different stuff. You know, you have a, you're, you're pretty busy right now, man. Yeah, it's definitely a busy time of the year here. Um, I think for, for most reptile breeders, the spring is, you know, when a lot of animals are breeding and laying eggs. And the same is true here. We have a bunch of uh, snakes that are hatching out and laying eggs almost every day, and the same is true with lizards, tegus, lacertas, a lot of exciting stuff. And uh, I'm really excited to have David on today. It's a, you know, it's a highly anticipated episode for me and you know, it's very knowledgeable and he's very, he's really well experienced. So. Yeah, I'd say we bring David on because he's calling from Australia. So, you know, we want to get him on right now. Awesome. Hey David, welcome to lizard hour. Uh, thank you. Uh, Thanks, Josh and JD. I'm glad to be here. That's excellent. So, um, I know your your background is is pretty vast, and um, you know most people that are into reptiles and monitor lizards and so on and so forth. They've obviously heard of you, but maybe you could give us a little bit of details on your background. Um, okay. Well, I I actually didn't uh, didn't originally come from Australia. I was born in Canada, and uh, I was really into herps from a very young age. And central Canada is probably not the ideal place. The province I grew up in had eight species in total. And um, so when I was a bit older and going to university and studying zoology, I decided that I was going to try to do my postgraduate somewhere else. I had a lot more reptiles. And that's how I ended up coming to Australia to do research in crocodiles. And so when I finished my, my studies, I uh, decided I was going to try to move here. So I went back to Canada to apply for residency. And I've been living in Australia ever since. But uh, I've now been here almost twice as long as I was in Canada. So I originally studied, I did my PhD on stalwart crocodiles. 
but I've always had an interest in mandrel lizards, and you see them you see them quite often when you're hiking in the Sydney area. You see lace monitors and heath monitors. And so when they changed the reptile keeping laws quite a number of years ago, and it became legal to keep them. I was talking to a friend who uh, had just bred his and, and said I would be interested in getting some, and I ended up um, getting some from him and some from another person and started getting really into breeding lace monitors in particular. And I've also been in and out of the zoo field for quite a long time, so I've been exposed to I've been breeding monitors in zoos as well. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to cover in um, a short time, but you, you were mentioning some of the monitors you work with, and you were mentioning lace monitors, so I figured that's maybe a good place to start. So with, with monitor lizards, I've seen some of the content you have on YouTube, which, which by the way, is excellent, some of the best videos I've seen, period. And what I'm always um, wondering is about the natural habitat of a lot of these animals. So I was thinking that maybe um, with your field experience, maybe you could tell us a bit about the natural habitat of lace monitors, uh, things like te the temperatures and their range and the polymorphism, and then maybe afterwards we could get into um, your experience having them in captivity. Okay. Uh, well, lace monitors come from pretty much almost all of eastern Australia along the coast starting with just outside of Melbourne and going all the way up the coast to the very top, uh, or almost the very top of Cape York Peninsula, they, they stop just a little bit after the Daintree. So if you're familiar with Australian um, topography, that's, we're looking at cool temperate right up into the tropics. And they go out west past the Great Dividing Range a fair way into western New South Wales. So you, tend to, so you find them in anything from kind of... Uh, gum forests in the south to tropical forests in the north and quite scrubby, semi-arid areas in the west. But they're always found near trees, so even in the west where it's really dry and hot, you'll, you'll find them along riverbeds. So they'll be in the gum trees next to the riverbeds. Um, so the temperature ranges a lot for lace monitors. But what they're really good at is thermoregulating. So even when they're quite far south, they're really quite dark down there, and they tend to take advantage of the sun, so they'll flatten themselves up against a tree and can bring their body temperature up to their required temperature to, into the mid-30s Celsius, which is, uh, I think it's 80 to mid-80s in Fahrenheit. Um, even in the middle of winter, they'll come out and bask on a, on a sunny day. So in the Sydney region, my animals come from the Sydney area, and in, in the Sydney region, you're looking at, Summer temperatures in most of the areas around here will vary um, mid 20s to um, so to mid to mid 30s Celsius. So you're looking at probably um, you know, 70 through through the 90s. It does get really hot occasionally, and then in winter it drops down. So it's probably about 20 degrees during the day, which is about 70 Fahrenheit, and then drops down at night depending on where you are, anywhere from uh, zero to six degrees, so we're looking at I guess the 40s, 40s down to 32. Uh, but where, what do you do find is that they love really hot days, and so even when, even in summer, if you're going to go out looking for reptiles on the days when nothing else is out, when it's really stinking hot, the lace monitors will still be out and moving, and they seem to prefer that weather. They're probably the hardiest, one of, the hard, one of the two hardiest species in, in Australia in terms of temperature to tolerance. I had a question about that, actually. 
So uh, for certain species, like South American species like tagus, you'll find the same species in Argentina, but you'll find it as uh, close to the equator as Brazil, and certain locales seem to be more tolerant to cool temperatures or warm temperatures depending on where they occur. Do you notice that with, with lace monitors as well, like the ones that reside in the warmer regions in captivity, they tend to prefer the warmer temperatures, and the same is true vice versa, or are not particularly? I haven't, yeah, I mean, I've never tried taking a tropical one and putting it in the Sydney winter, so I, I can't really comment on that. But they, in general, they seem to have really similar temperature preferences. Okay. Um, when, and when it does get caught... Oh, sorry, what I was going to say is one of the one of the adaptations that lace monitors have for coping with cool winters, and it's both lace monitors and heat monitors. This is Rosenberg guy, which is not closely related to lace monitors at all, but they both nest in termite mounds because with the winters here, there's no way that the eggs would survive right through a nine-month incubation for lace monitors or a seven-month incubation for heat monitors because the incubation goes right through winter. The only way those eggs can survive is by them nesting in termite mounds because the termites keep the, the, uh, the nests quite stable at around 30 degrees Celsius. No, that, that completely um, that makes sense. It's going to be pretty stable. I know there's some other species that have um, similar nesting activity too, even, even with snakes. Um, yeah. So the polymorphism you're seeing in the wild um, is, is it very commonplace to see like uh, like Bell's phase or or the wild type phase or maybe even other um, varieties you're seeing or it depends really on the region? The lace monitors have they they do have a fairly predictable range of patterns that's um, locality specific, and so you find that the further south you go, the lace monitors are physically larger and they're darker. They have less of the speckling on them. And as you go further north along the coast, they call it the speckling forms rough bands, but as you get towards Queensland, the bands form little spots. And so by the time you get from, if you go from Brisbane, for example, all the way to the north end of the lace monitor range, they're, they're almost completely spotted up in the Daintree. But within each area, there is still a fair bit of variation with darker and lighter animals. But the polymorphism, the, the, the true polymorphism where you get the Bell's phase, that's kind of a, that's a single gene mutation. It's sort of like California king snakes and how you've got populations of striped California king, king snakes. It's, it's just a, a, essentially a genetic switch that messes up the whole pattern and produces big bands instead of narrow bands. And it's more common west of the Great Dividing Range. You do find them on the coast in certain areas, like northern New South Wales, you find bells phase along the coast. But mostly it's once you go west of the mountains, you start seeing them. But even there, uh, they're probably, they make up of probably about 25% of the, of the population, and the rest will be the more normal colored individuals. Hmm. And um, I'm familiar with that, that color phase, but I'm not familiar on the genetics behind it. Is it um, a dominant mutation where they just need one allele? Or does it have like a homozygous form that's visually different? Or it's a it's a it's a dominant it's a, it just follows basic Mendelian genetics. It's a, it's a dominant allele on a on a you know on a single locus. So it's just um, 
Yeah, one one gene, and it's dominant. I have heard claims that homozygous individuals are cleaner, but I I just don't think there's any consistency with that. Yeah, that was the main reason I was actually asking. I think I had heard that once or twice, but I honestly didn't have enough experience to really know if it was, you know, correct or not. So, so yeah. but that but your response on that completely makes sense. So, yeah, I, I, I think I think someone would have to breed an awful lot of them from a lot of unrelated individuals to, and they'd have to have some sort of way of standardizing clean versus dirty, so that you can say with confidence that yes. The, the dominant ones are, or homozygous dominant are cleaner, cleaner looking patterns. Yeah, definitely. Like a bigger sample size if we needed that. That's completely logical. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're pretty fortunate. We get to speak to a lot of different people that keep a lot of different types of animals, a lot of different types of reptiles, and um, some of them have a decent amount of field experience, and some of them have a decent amount of experience having the animals in captivity. Many do actually. But um, it's rare that we get to speak to someone that has, you know, both of those experiences. Um, so how has your, your field work with the lace monitors kind of rolled over to you having them in captivity? Maybe you've done things a certain way that you wouldn't have done if you wouldn't have observed them in, in, um, in the field. Oh, definitely. Uh, when I first started keeping them, uh, that's, that's a, a funny thing is that even though I used to see them on a reasonably regular basis when I went out bushwalking, when I started keeping them in captivity, that's when I started spending a lot more time out um, specifically looking for lace monitors to watch them. And same with heath monitors. I spent a lot of time watching the Rosenberg eye as well because their nesting habits are really similar. And so I think probably the first thing that I did was I used a nest box and made sure that the nest box was heated um, and full of substrate. I think uh, a common rookie error when someone makes a nest box for a for a monitor that nests in termite mounds is to half fill it or three-quarter fill it with substrate and then put a lid on it. And what ends up happening is the monitor uses it as a hide box rather than an nest box. So what I did is that in, I'd absolutely pack the nest box full of substrate and have it heated from the bottom so there's a temperature gradient so that it gets warmer as the monitor digs deeper. Um, it gets closer to the, the heat pad. The heat rises a bit, of course, so it does spread through the substrate. But having to dig its way into the nest box seems to make a really big difference because then they view it as essentially a termite mount. So that's probably a, the biggest thing uh, that I did in terms of going, going on my personal observations and also reading a lot of scientific papers on reproduction in lace monitors in the wild. Because people, I, I spoke to a lot of people beforehand, and some people would use nest boxes, but it was kind of a haphazard thing, and most people didn't heat them. And they didn't really worry about the temperature. They didn't, they didn't really think about the temperature. One of the things that's, that's really clear is that monitors are very picky about the uh, temperature where they nest. So, it, um, yeah, so you find that um, when people have females that scatter eggs um, or withhold the eggs for too long, there's usually some issue around nesting, and it comes down to humidity. Uh, or temperature, or lack of a of a good burrowing substrate. Yeah, no, that that completely makes sense since they are um, they do habitually um, lay eggs in termite mounds, and, and this box would come in handy. So uh, along the lines of that too, I want to make sure I didn't forget to ask you this question. So you so with breeding, are you emulating seasonal conditions in terms of the temperatures in your enclosures? 
are you having fluctuating temperatures throughout the year um, or not? Okay, so up, in, up until recently, I just moved into a, a new house just a few months ago. But prior to that, I was living pretty close to the inner city. I was living five minutes from the main city of Sydney, you know, quite a built-up area. So I had my animals indoors in an indoor enclosure, and what I, so everything was temperature-controlled. And what I would do is I would just turn off all sorts of heat in winter and have them do a proper brumation. They'll still move around on warm days, but I wouldn't feed them from probably about um, April, May until September. Um, and I found that it's probably you probably don't have to do that. I don't think it's necessary, but it, it is a really easy way to control their breeding if you want to trigger a reproductive cycle. What you do is by cooling them down and not offering any food, then in spring you warm them up and really hammer the female with food. She'll go into um, vitellogenesis, which is the you know, production of the ova or development of yolking up of the ova for, for, for mating um, within about two weeks. And then once, once you've done one cycle, then you can, do, you can, you can multi-clutch them if you want. Um, I wouldn't go for too many clutches, but um, make sure the female is well supported with food. You can get two or, or three clutches. So do you have uh, visible light in there? You just turn up all your basking in there at, at whatever ambient you have set? Or, yeah, or do they pretty much have um, – I'm sorry, go ahead, yes? So, yeah, in the indoor enclosure I had um, – so I had fluorescent tubes, day, daylight colored fluorescent tubes for ambient lights, and then I had uh, a series of basking lights. And the basking lights wouldn't be turned on during – during winter, but I'd have the um, the ambient lights on, and it also shortened the days. So even with the ambient lights, the ambient fluorescent lights, I'd shorten the days a bit. Okay, so um, some of us um, deal with species that do brumate. For example, like I deal with uh, tegus, and and the thing for me is having it cool enough that they that they brumate, but not not too much on the warm end. Because if you have it too much on the warm end, then they still have a decent amount of metabolic activity, which could be a problem. Um, what temperatures are you usually shooting for when you when you turn off your basking lights? What what's the ambience in there usually? So in my in my um, where I was living in my condo in Neutral Bay when I was living before, uh, we'd probably be looking at um, during the day it would get to about 20 degrees, and then at night it would go down to about um, sort of 10 degrees Celsius. So uh, 20 degrees is, is around 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and 10 degrees I'd have to do a mental calculation, but you're probably looking in the 50s, I would think. And are they offered they, they water uh, the whole time? They have or? water, yes. There's always, there's always water available. They, they wouldn't very often drink. And then and metabolizing during, during winter is only a problem if they're kept really warm. So a little bit of, a little bit of metabolic activity is fine. So at the moment I've got um, I've got my adults outside. I've got actually my adult male outside, and so he he comes out during the day to bask and gets his body temperature quite high, and then it cools down a fair bit at night. Hmm. Um, and do they primarily um, go in their nest box area when it's cool at night, or where are they residing usually when it's cold and within the enclosure? Okay, so when when they're indoors, uh, the first two winters I had them uh, indoors, they they just hide in their logs, and the female I didn't see at all during the winter, uh, the male was, was coming out quite a lot, quite a lot. 
But uh, as they got older, they would be out all the time. They'd just be lying out in the open, uh, quite often high up in the enclosure, so they'd get whatever heat there was because the, the temperature would rise. So if the room warmed up a bit, they'd be at the warmest spot they could. But uh, now that I've got uh, the male outside, I don't, I don't have any adult females at the moment. I've got the male outside, and he's he's definitely in his log. Um, just just yesterday, I a friend came over and we built a you know winter hide box for him, which is a really well insulated one, which I'm going to be putting in probably later today. Um, and that'll be a, it's a, essentially a con- converted cooler with a long entranceway, so that uh, he can get right in there, and when it gets really cold at night. He'll be well insulated. He's definitely much more conscious of going into his log now that it's getting cooler. Uh, during the summer, he'd quite often sleep outside, even in the rain. And but uh, he definitely makes a point of going into his log long before he cools down, so he can't move. Uh, that cooler that you have outdoors, uh, do you have a heating element on it as well, or is it just a cooler basically to protect them from like the extremes and, and temperature fluctuations? It's just a cooler that protects from the extremes in temperature. Okay. All right. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll have to bury it in leaf litter as well for extra insulation. Okay. And outdoors so in your particular – In your region, what, what are the, the, the winter temps expected to be? Well, because I've, I've just moved house, and this, this where I'm living now, I'm living in a gully. I'm living on the side of a hill, uh, so the temperature gets quite low here. So if I go up to the top of the hill, I, I don't think it gets, you know, it will never get to freezing in this, this in this area. But where I am now, you get the occasional frost, so it does go down to zero probably, you know, a few times during the winter. Um, but even now that it's, we're, we're a month away from winter, it's beautiful during the day. It's really warm up right now, but at night it's dropping down to about five or six degrees Celsius, which is quite cool. Yeah, the, the reason I'm asking is it seems like these, a lot of people breed monitor lizards outdoors here in the, in the southeast U.S., especially like Florida, for example, but a lot yeah. of those uh, tend to be Indonesian species. Um, I'm sure there may be some people breeding Australian species, and maybe I'm just not privy to it. Um, but lace monitors seem like they would do, depending on where you reside here, they might do quite well. Right now I live in South Carolina, so there's actually quite a few nights we get below freezing. Not, not well below freezing, but you know, a couple degrees Fahrenheit below. So maybe not necessarily here, or maybe so. Who knows? Because um, I was more yeah. so asking to see what kind of extremes is uh, reasonable to, um, for that particular species. So you probably you probably find that you could keep lace monitors outdoors in your area. You just have, just have to make sure that they have a really adequate uh, winter winter hide spot. Hmm. Um, um, is there and, rain and, and overlap a lot? Because. Does their range overlap a lot with Australian water dragons, or, or not particularly? Oh, absolutely, yes, definitely. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was about to comment because I heard in the lead up to the show, I can, I could hear one of the ads, and they were talking about, um, was it, was it, uh, is it Josh that you breed uh, Australian water dragons? Yeah, Australian, and I keep them outdoors. A lot of them here. Yeah. So uh, in my where I'm living now, I get both lace monitors and uh, water dragons in my backyard. And so, uh, so water dragons are, are, are really common here. I've got a, like an, on any given day in summer, I'll get a pair of binoculars out and look down at the creek, and you can see them sitting on the rocks. And, and quite often they come up, uh, up bask on rocks near the house as well. 
So they, they definitely, they, there's a huge amount of overlap between late smarters and water dragons. Yeah, and that makes sense. When you were describing the temperature, I was like, wow, that seems a lot really similar to the Australian water dragons that I keep. So I wonder if they would have overlap in them. And I imagine they would. So, so yeah. that completely, yeah. um, that's completely logical. Um, the, big, the, big difference, the big difference, though, is that even though they're in the same habitat, their, their temperature preferences are different. So there, there are days where you just won't, will not see a water dragon. They'll be in, in crevices and stuff because it's too hot, and the lace monitors will be out. And, and conversely, you'll see the water dragons out uh, on some winter days where you won't see lace monitors. Yeah, no, that, that's, um, that, that makes sense as well. Um, I had more questions about your setups because I have watched your videos and I have some more specific questions. But before I go on with my questions, uh, J.D., did you have um, questions for David? Actually, David, uh, I want you to tell how the lacy you had named Satan, it, has it calmed down a little bit now, or is it still a crazy feeder? So which, which one are we talking about now? Sorry. Uh, the Satan one. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, Satan with the bells. Um, Satan always raising Satan in the hopes that it was going to turn into a female. Oh, that was sure it wouldn't say turn into, but it was a female. But uh, as it got older, it showed clear signs of being a male. So I ended up selling it to someone in Queensland. But by the time I sold it, it was already quite a calm animal. And as an adult, it's a very calm animal. That behavior is actually quite common in lace monitors that really, at that age, they, they're quite often just little maniacs. Um, and I, <laughs> I'm a big proponent of just leaving them alone. I tend not to hassle them in any way. So when they're hatchlings, up until they're probably a year old, I, I don't make any effort to handle them. I just let them become more confident on their own. When they start hanging out and basking even when you're in the room, rather than running away and hiding, then over time you can slowly start opening the enclosure door and uh, put your hand in there. So just you know, let them come and check it out because they're quite often curious. Feed them, uh, put a glove on and, and have them crawl onto the gloved hand while you feed them using tongs held in the other hand, and just very slowly get them used to people. I've never had a lace model that didn't calm down as an adult. But they all have crazy feeding. I shouldn't say they all have crazy, crazy feeding responses. Most of them have, even as adults, it doesn't matter how calm they are, a lot of them have, have really insane feeding responses. Yeah, I've seen your videos where you're, where you're tongue feeding them. It's actually a it's pretty interesting. And, and in regards to the setup you have to them, um, I know you cover it in the videos as well. There's a lot of, of vertical space. Um, yeah. What dimensions do you usually recommend if people, and it makes sense why they would have a vertical space, what dimensions would you recommend if someone would have it in captivity for like an adult male or adult animal period and also for an adult uh, pair? So the, the, so the enclosure that I had when the men before moved house was, so 2.4 meters, which is uh, 8 feet, by 2.4 meters by 1.2 meters. So essentially 8 feet by 8 feet by 4 feet. That would be an absolute minimum. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go any smaller than that, and I, and I probably wouldn't even have tried keeping them in the enclosure that size if the whole back wall wasn't fully usable, climbable space. So I've got extra surface area. Because they really they, they use up the space. So my, my adult male, my big male now, is in a, uh, a 4.8 meter long enclosure. So that's, we're looking at um, over 15 feet long. 
and uh, and he uses up that space. No, no, definitely. And um, I know you house them together during certain times of the year, depending on what you're doing, obviously, if you're breeding them. But, for example, with some Indonesian species, if the female isn't cycling, then it could be problematic. The female may fight with the male. Do you see that issue with, with lace monitors, that depending on when lace you monitors, um, place them together is problematic or no? Um, there's, there's no um, hard and fast rules because the individuals vary. But in, but in general, if you once you've introduced the male and the female, your best your best bet is to keep them together all year round. And I would only separate mine when the female is getting ready to lay eggs, because she'd become very nest defensive after she lays, and also so the male wouldn't have her while she was laying. But I found that the female would become extremely nest defensive even even against the male after she laid. So I'd separate them for for a couple of weeks around egg laying. But other than that, I'd have them together all year round. And one of the reasons for that is every time you reintroduce them, if you separate them and only introduce them at certain times, every time you reintroduce them, it's, it's a stressful situation. So there's always an increased chance of there being a fight if you're constantly reintroducing them rather than keeping them together. I think having a lot of space, having a lot of hide spots, having at least two sets of basking spots, uh, all that sort of stuff, just and a lot of visual barriers, is, is the best way to keep pairs together. But not all, not all individuals can be kept together. There are you know, problematic individuals that can't, can't be kept with others. And it, so and when no would you... Um, yeah, of course, it depends on the individual character. So when would you place the female back with the male? Because even after she lays eggs, um, you know, maybe it takes a certain amount of time before she's no longer nest defensive. So how would you go about that, go about that placing them back together afterwards, like time that you let um, okay, go by so, and everything? So what I used to do when I had the – when I was using the indoor enclosure and I had a partition in the middle, the female wouldn't figure that after a while, that she couldn't actually gain access to the male through the partition, so she'd stop trying to attack him through the partition. But I'd watch her behavior and see how vigilant she was towards the male when the male was moving around. It, when she seemed to ignore him, what I would do is, it usually took about 10 or 11 days after laying. And I used to pick up the male and actually hold him in the front of the enclosure because even though she knew that she couldn't get him through the partition, the front of the enclosure was a different access point, and she thought that she'd be able to get to him through there. So if I held up the male in front of the enclosure and she rushed at the glass, then it was too soon. Um, what I found is that usually on a, at around the 10 or 11-day mark, she'd stop rushing at the glass, she'd start running away, and then I'd give it a couple more days, and usually after two weeks, she'd be starting the next cycle, and then I'd introduce them. But even if she hadn't started the next cycle, at the point where she stopped trying to attack them, then I'd put them together and move the partition. That's a really good strategy, holding the male in front. I never even thought about that. Um, yeah. So how many clutches were you getting um, per season? Because I know that if you did cool them down like you did previously, um, I'm assuming you would get less clutches than if you kept them up all year, or maybe not necessarily. Yeah, I would get, I'd get, I'd get um, two clutches every year, and then on some years I'd get three clutches. Usually, usually the third clutch was kind of a, an accident. I, I, I didn't always try for a third clutch, or I wouldn't normally try for a third clutch. I'd usually let the female do two clutches. I'd try to slow her down. It's kind of tricky because you really have to 
slow down the, the feeding of the female. I think the the key is if you don't want the female to keep on you know, producing clutches, then when they are gravid and getting ready to lay eggs, they tend to not eat. So as a consequence, it's sort of like what happens in winter when they're going from little to no food and then suddenly getting a lot of food because the temptation is after she's laid, when she's looking quite thin on the base of the tail, you want to feed her a lot, and that usually triggers the next cycle. So quite often what I would do is after she would lay, and I, if I thought two clutches was enough, I'd just feed her moderately and let her regain that weight slowly. Most of it's fluid loss anyway. But I let her regain the, the weight loss after laying quite gradually and try not to trigger another cycle. Okay, so it seems like um, that you controlled cycling one of the ways at least was with, with feeding then. Would that be fair to say that? Yes, absolutely. I think I think food is the biggest trigger to a female cycling. Um, and that's, that's actually going to be the topic of my, my next video in my series. Now, I should say for anyone out there that's, that has been watching my series, you've probably noticed that there's been a, a gap of about a year since my last video. I do apologize. I haven't died or given up making videos. I've just been extremely busy because I've been moving house. Um, and where I'm working now, uh, it's pretty hectic. So in a, in a two or three months, I hope to have the time to start doing more videos. And the, the next video in the series, in the breeding series, is going to be on cycling or vitellogenesis and uh, and how to, you know, what it looks like and how to induce it. No, that's going to be a really great video, and um, and I agree completely with um, with cycle feeding, basically. Um, so when when they're emerging from, I don't know if you would necessarily refer to it as a brumation or a cool down. Um, do you slowly start feeding them like like a week afterwards when you see them more active, and then as they go back to cooling down, do you do you slow it down? Do you taper off the feeding? How how are you doing that throughout the year? Their feeding regimen. I tend to okay. So in in uh, in autumn when I'm when I'm slowing them down, I tend to do that fairly gradually. I sort of reduce the number of hours of basking each day, and then kind of sort start feeding them less and less food and less frequently, and then. In spring, I tend to do a little bit faster. I'll, I'll usually have lights on for about a week before I start feeding them small amounts. And then once they once they start feeding, then I try to increase the temperature fairly, you know, over the course of a week, and increase the basking from a, from a couple of hours a day to a full day, and get the female really started on her food. Okay. And what are your thoughts on um, on feeding um, food types, for example, like whole prey versus not whole prey? and uh, different types of whole prey, like varying the diet. What are your thoughts on monitor lizard diets in general? I'm, a, I'm, a, like I, I'm an absolute stickler for feeding whole prey. I will very occasionally give something else, but for the most part, uh, probably 99% of what I give my monitors is whole prey. And uh, usually, so usually mice, stale chickens, uh, when they're small, insects. But um, I don't, actually... I know a lot of people would disagree with me. I don't think variety is as is that important as long as the feeders animals are well looked after and uh, and you know, uh, have been raised well. Uh, if if you've got access to a good variety, then that's good as well. Um, I don't think the I think the monitors don't really worry about it. <laughs> I mean, I, it's it's really hard to get a lace monitor to not eat something rather than to get it to eat something. 
But um, but I, yeah, I, I, you know, if, you, if you've got access to variety, then I would definitely give a variety. Um, so yeah, and mice, tails, chickens, rats, quail, um, anything, yeah, the odd egg. They don't really mind. But hopefully, no, hopefully that, that's definitely. great. Okay, and then all of this leading uh, leading up, of course, to you know potential egg production and, theref- and therefore incubation. So, how are you incubating your eggs, and how long do they incubate? So, the my average uh, for incubation for lace mortar eggs is around 255 days. So, um, I think it's, 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 it's quite a few months. And what I used to, I used to use perlite. And then, uh, then I switched over to the Sims containers, and I absolutely love using the suspension method over water. So I had I had a lot of success with perlite. I had pretty much, I mean, for for good eggs, which are well nested eggs, that went the full length of incubation. I'd get, um, I'd, you know, I'd get 100% hatch rate. You'd know if an egg was not going to make it if it, if, you know, some eggs, the odd egg would go within a couple of weeks of laying. But other than that, everything else was had a 100% hatch rate for the for the ones that went full term. It didn't disappear in two weeks. Um, but I found that with perlite, you get a, a fair bit. Of, you have to pay a lot more attention to the eggs because the water balance is quite tricky. If, it, if they get too too moist, if the perlite's too moist, the eggs can get too full. Whereas when you're using the suspension method over water. They can get pretty full and still get rid of excess moisture that they need to just before hatching. So the last quarter of the, inc- of the incubation period, they tend to lose weight in preparation for pipping, and, and they can still do that if they're suspended over over water, even if they get really full. And what I think is my hypothesis. I haven't I can't I haven't tested this out. Um, haven't been able to yet. But I think that when they're sitting on a substrate like perlite, there are actually micro droplets. So touching the egg, so when you have a really full egg, it's because it's absorbing water through osmosis. And I don't think the egg is able to fight osmosis, so I think they struggle to get rid of that extra, excess moisture. Whereas when they're suspended above water, they're dealing with high humidity at the gas, and they can get rid of that. They can, they can control that. So what I found is that by incubating them over water, the eggs will get much fuller. I didn't mind them getting fuller, and the babies will end up being much more robust. So the Babies coming out would be the same weight, but there'd be less yolk and more more baby. They'd be huge, big, big, robust babies, and they come bursting out of the incubation box. I'd open up the incubation box, and they'd be running all over the place immediately. Whereas in perlite, you'd find them kind of lying around the egg for the first few hours, looking a bit dopey, and they quite often have big bellies uh, with enough yolk to last them for a week, so they wouldn't feed for a while. Whereas the over incubated over water, they would just um, yeah, they'd be feeding within a few days, within two, two, three days. No, no, that's that's great. Um, are you modifying the sim containers in any way, or um, modifying your regimen? For example, are, if the eggs are sweating towards the end, are you wiping the lid, or do you find none of that necessary? Do you pretty much just place them in there, and that's all? Are you placing small so holes the only, in the only uh, container? I do, and this is this, this goes back to. So I'll, I'll give you a bit of a history. So um, uh, I mm-hmm. I've known. John Andragna, who developed the Sims, John and Greg, mm-hmm. uh, I've known them for years. And I was, um, I was interested in Perlite, and a friend of mine who lives up 
in Queensland. He's been breeding lace morons for a really long time and breeding all sorts of other reptiles. And he has always used, used the suspension method. And I was visiting him once and thought, oh, I'm going to give that a try. And so I jigged up a couple of homemade containers to do the suspension method. And then I happened to be um, in New York and uh, caught up with John. I think it was the very first time I met him in person. Maybe the only time I actually met him in person. And he had just had just started developing the Sims containers and he said, here, try try a couple of these and um, take them home and give them a try on lace mortars because no one's used them on lace mortars yet. So I brought them home and used them and have been using them ever since. And the one modification that I make is I, I'll take a, um, a soldering iron and I'll make little holes in the lid and then I'll stretch glad wrap over the top. And what that does is glad wrap is, a, I think it's polypropylene, but it breathes allows the exchange of gases but keeps the moisture in. And so that way, once I've got that on the incubation box, I can put it in a um, put it in the incubator and just leave them alone for, for, for most of the incubation. So when I, when I was incubating over perlite, I found myself fiddling a lot with the eggs late in incubation because the eggs in the corner of the egg boxes would get quite full because they're getting a lot of extra humidity off from condensation on the walls of the egg boxes, and the ones in the corner would get the most because they had access to two walls. So you'd find these really plump eggs in the corners and these really dented eggs in the center. So what I'd do is I'd swap them around and put the dented eggs in the corners, move the plump eggs in the middle, and they'd even out. And I'd keep on doing that leading up to um, hatching, so that would probably be the last two or three months of, of incubation. Whereas with the Sims method, I would just leave them in there and forget about them and then I'd probably um, a month before I expect them to hatch I'd move them into another incubator I had an incubator in my that was actually in my in my house rather than uh, I used to have them in the big incubator in my garage um, but I'd bring up a, put them into a smaller incubator in my house so I could keep an eye on them and then check them on a regular basis so at most I might air them every now and then I might air them every couple of months um, but I found that the glider app was enough, and usually just leave them alone. Okay. Are you placing one hole or, or multiple holes? The big pardon? Are you placing one hole into the uh, sim container itself with the soldering iron, or, or multiple? Are you spreading them out multiple with holes. one in each corner, for example? Or? Yeah, I'd make, I'd make multiple holes. So the holes are probably about a centimeter wide. So that's. Um, Bit less than, you know, sort of a bit more than a third of an inch. They um, you don't want them too big because it depends on how tall a Sims container you're using as well. The first Sims, Sims containers I got from John were the small ones, and I found with those ones, if if I had large holes, then the hatchings would just come through the holes and slit the glad wrap with their egg tooth, and then you have problems because it would dry out the rest of the eggs. But I, I um, with a, a taller container it's not an issue, but I just make small holes anyway so the hatchlings can't squeeze through them. Okay. The, um, the, um, the Sims containers have a bit of a it's kind of a depressed lid. It's got a raised edge. So when you spread the glad wrap over the top of it and stretch it tight, there's a little bit of an airspace between the glad wrap and the lid that's got the holes in it, which is better for, for gas exchange. Uh, that, that's great. Um, so I, I want to um, 
because you obviously cover a, a lot of different species and you have a lot of experience with different species. And um, I wanted to cover a bit about crocodilians. But before we, we um, go on to that, are there any um, misconceptions with, the, with having lace monitors in captivity that you wanted to point out? I know one thing that you pointed out that struck out to, that stuck out to me was um, with the nesting box. It's more, it simulates more the, uh, the effect of having a termite mount. Are there any other yes. misconceptions or errors you see at times? Um, look, I, th- I think um, the, the two. I think I, I think a lot of people that have come to keeping monitor lizards. This applies to all monitor lizards, not just lace monitors. From other reptiles, think that the way to get them tame is to handle them more. Um, so I think that's a that's a misconception. I think it, that's a, a difficult one to get past, and it requires a lot of patience if you want a calm animal. I, I think, personally, I, I think having them having them too calm is a, a little, little bit of a liability too, because it makes people complacent. They they are a dangerous animal. <laughs> they have a strong feeding response, and uh, I, I worry when I see people pictures of people cuddling them. I think the other misconception is that you can just feed them anything. That you can you know they can live their whole life on chicken necks and drumsticks. A lot of people keep them. They think, well, because they because they will eat those things, uh, that that's that you know that's okay to, to feed them as a diet. So I think they uh, nutrition nutrition. I mean, they're just like any other animal. They need a, a full array of vitamins and minerals and trace elements, which you can get from a whole animal that you you're not going to get from just a chicken neck or a drumstick. No, of course. Just because they're willing to eat it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for them. So, so that's, that's a really great point. Um, I'm sure we could talk about lace monitors, you know, go on and on for hours. But I want to make sure we, we cover some of the other stuff because you have a lot of interesting um, things you worked with and a lot of interesting experiences. So, um, I was thinking maybe you could tell us about some of your background with crocodilians and some of your experience with that. So. Um so most of my experiences with crocodilians are actually, funnily enough, uh, either in the wild or through research rather than in captivity. I've got some, some experience with them in captivity, but it's mostly in the wild. Um, and I, as I said, I came to Australia to, to do research on, on saltwater crocodiles, so I spent a little bit of time up in Arnhem Land in northern Australia, which is a, it's an Aboriginal reserve. In those days, you couldn't really go there as a tourist. They only gave a limited number of permits. We had a research station up there, so we could, so we, we could go up there. And um, yeah, that's what I can what I can tell you is it, it, it was a pretty wild time for me coming straight from Canada. Um, we essentially went from a cold winter in, in Manitoba, within Australia, and then probably a month later, I was in tropical Arnhem Land, um, and we were. Um, we had permits to catch a few crocodiles to bring back to Sydney, so it was, it was a pretty wild ride. Uh, it's hard to, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine that growing up in a place that has very few reptiles, and then suddenly seeing reptiles that uh, the biggest reptile in the world, <laughs> it, and they get get six meters long. So quite a quite a spectacular animal. Now I've seen over the years um, a change too. I mean, when I was there, that was in the early 80s, and they were still recovering from hunting. Cause hunting stopped in the 70s and made hunting illegal. Crocodiles got full protection in the 70s, and the big crocodiles were still very wary. 
in the rough north. Uh, you find in some remote areas, you find some crocodiles that are still naive, but most of the ones near Nangrida, where we're doing our research, were, were fairly wary. But what I've noticed since then is that the population has been recovering really well. So Australia's got a very good saltwater crocodile population now. Uh, so when you go up there, um, and it's something I highly recommend to people, anyone that comes to Australia to see reptiles, to go up to Kakadu National Park and take the Yellow Waters Cruise first thing in the morning, and you'll just see so many crocodiles. It's really spectacular. Um, we, had a, we did have a few hairy experiences when we were catching them. The, um, we were catching by hand. We are mostly catching small crocodiles. Um, and, and the technique we were using is essentially to jump out of the boat um, onto these small crocodiles in shallow water. And so we had quite a few hairy experiences, as you can imagine. It's not something I'll probably do today because you'd never know if there's another larger crocodile nearby. Uh, but in those days, the chance of there being two crocodiles really close together was slimmer, although that wasn't always the case. We did have a few scares. No, that's definitely um, that definitely could be scary. I can imagine, and it's funny because when I when I think about catching um, crocodiles in Australia, for, for whatever reason, I always default to you know what I see in the U.S. and I see uh, like Steve Irwin's older videos and how they're using like the, the rope techniques and things like that. And you know, to imagine actually jumping on one. I mean, I've seen him do that as well. But um, that could be nerve wracking. I can imagine for sure. I'm sure you have a lot of interesting stories about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the the um, the rope thing wouldn't have worked back then because the crocodiles were fairly fairly wary, and so we found that um, if you if you're going to catch a large crocodile, they they used to use a shallow penetrating harpoon. Um, you wouldn't be able to. So the, the shallow penetrating harpoon just it just attaches to the skin of the neck, and this is only for research purposes. But uh, we somebody would be catching a big crocodile anyway. Um, you wouldn't be able to just go and rope its snout. You wouldn't be able to get close enough. And so with the hatchlings, they and, the, and up to the ones we were catching are mostly up to about a meter and a bit long. They they were quite wary as well. I mean they they were naive because they weren't had been old enough to be hunted. But at the same time, you wouldn't. They wouldn't hang around long enough for you to put a rope around them, so you pretty much have to jump out, jump out of the uh, the boat. Um, probably the most intense experience I had was I was um, it was someone else's turn to jump on a crocodile. Um, I was in the back of the boat, I was in the stern near the motor, and as we were approaching this crocodile, the crocodile had turned and faced to face the boat, and so. I hadn't really, so I figured that's, you know, that's why they weren't jumping on it. So the guy who's going to be jumping on it didn't jump on it. And the boat was drifting along, and as the boat was drifting along, the crocodile turned away and started swimming towards the shore. And I had a, a good a good access to the crocodile from where I was. And so I gestured the guys at the front of the boat, and I pointed to the crocodile and gestured, you know, do you want me to catch it? And what I hadn't realized, I couldn't hear the conversation that was going on because I was right next to the motor, and what they had said was the crocodile was too big. And, um, and when you're at night using a headlight, it's really hard to get a good three-dimensional view of things. You, everything is a little bit flat, so you don't get a good scale. <laughs> and what was happening is I thought it was a smaller, uh, you know, like a smaller crocodile close to the boat rather than a bigger crocodile moving away from the boat. And so, um, and so, so the guys looked at me when I said, you know, should I catch it? They looked at me, and apparently they said to each other, oh, mad Canadian, 
because I was fresh off the boat from Canada, and they just kind of said, you know, go ahead, <laughs> knock yourself out. And so I, I got, I jumped on the gun on the boat and dived for this crocodile. And uh, and as I was going to the water, I, re- I was reaching further and further for it, and realized it was further away than I thought, and bigger than I thought. And just before I hit the water, I put my hands around its neck and thought, oh, my my fingers aren't touching. It's it's a bigger crocodile than I thought. And I figured I just had to hold on. They they tire fairly quickly, and so. We were also, at this stage, the boat had drifted a fair way from the shore, so we were pretty much um, a third of the way into the river, so I just disappeared under the water with this crocodile and just held on to it until it stopped struggling and then swam up to the boat and handed it to the guys in the boat, and they were all hooting and cheering because they said I had the, the station record, the, the field station record for the biggest hand, hand-caught crocodile. It wasn't huge. It was a couple meters long, but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty intense anyway. Yeah, no, I can imagine what went through your mind when you actually realized that um, it was actually significantly larger than you expected. That must yeah. have been scary, but probably the adrenaline pumping, I'm assuming. So. Yes, yeah. I think I'll just hold on, just in case. They, they, they're usually pretty good. The wild crocodiles are actually, um, when we had the wild crocodiles in the lab, they're actually better behaved than captive raised ones. Captive raised ones don't have any fear of people, or, or captive bred ones don't have any fear of people. So, if, if you handle them, if it, you know, the saltwater crocodiles, if they're around people all the time, they can become quite calm. But uh, if you know, if they're in captivity but not being handled very often, they can be quite a bad mixture of being bold and, and not frightened of people, and yet fight enough to bite. So um, I found them quite tricky. But the wild caught ones were. You'd walk into the room where they were, and they'd just dive to the bottom of the water, and we'd be able to pick them up. Just put your hands in the water and uh, very carefully put your hand around the neck and base the tail and bring them to the surface, and they wouldn't struggle until you got them to the surface. Yeah, I never thought about it from that, from that perspective, but that does make sense what you were describing and, and why they would act that way. Um, yeah. Freshwater crocodiles, Johnson and I, are, are much crankier as captives. Uh, they're they're, okay. uh, they're really cranky. They can be really, really cranky animals as captives. So all the crocodiles are actually quite well behaved. Hmm. Um. And now you're you're on to you know a new, a new adventure over at the zoo. So I wanted to touch on that a bit um, because I know that must be you know quite the experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of a team that's building an entirely new zoo, which is a, a once in a lifetime experience. The zoo's are normally established. You go into any city and the, the zoo has been there for a long time. So the, so the government-run zoo in Sydney, for example, had its centenary two years ago, two or three years ago, actually 2016, so it's 100 years old, and that's quite typical of zoos. They're, they're usually quite old. So it's not often you see an entirely new zoo start from scratch. I have been involved in a small wildlife park in the city, um, so I've been through this experience before, but not on this scale. So this is like a full zoo with Big exotic African animals, giraffes, lions, tigers, and well, not African, but <laughs> big exotic animals, um, you name it. Um, and I am responsible for the reptiles. So we're building a, a reptile house um, and can be stocking it with Australian native animals, all captive bred. So it's a really exciting project. Uh, you know, designing and um, planning a zoo. It's also very nerve wracking as well. So we've been, we've been involved in the project for, I'm just trying to think now, it's been two and a half years. But the first 
couple of years were just as a essentially doing a few hours here and there, and then went full time about a year and a half ago, and we moved on to the zoo site. And at the time, it was a pretty much a green field. People referred to new projects as green field, green field projects, where this is literally a, a green field. And now it's a, you know, it's a just about a full zoo. It's, you know, there's moats and enclosures and you name it. So it's, it's really quite interesting. It's called it's called Sydney Zoo. No, that, that's excellent. It sounds very exciting. It sounds very busy and you know maybe maybe stressful at times at least. But it sounds very exciting. So so when are they expecting that to potentially um, be open? Uh, we're looking at um, probably what are we now? So it's so it's sometime in the middle of this year. So we're looking at looking at July August opening. Oh wow, that's great! That's even sooner than I expected. So that's wonderful. It gives, it gives um, us over here even more reasons to visit Australia because for most uh, people here, that especially people that like reptiles, Australia is like one of the the mecca. It's one of the locations you have to go to. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a definite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know that because you went from Canada to Australia, so I don't have to preach exactly, to you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the thing is, I've been here for 38 years, and I I still don't uh, take it for granted. I still get excited when I see you know what are relatively common things here that I get very excited about. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. That, that's great. Um, okay, uh, J.D., did you have uh, more questions for, for David? Actually, David, I have a little story to tell you. I was talking to John from some incubation container, and he actually told me, I said, David's going to be on the show. He actually told me, David is a god. So, you know, that comes from John. <laughs> Did you just comment that it again? <laughs> I, I just, so I didn't catch what you said. Oh, uh, I was talking to John from some incubation container, and he said they go. I told right. him that you were going to be on the show, and he said that you are a god. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, not quite, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um. So, David, is there anything that you wanted to um, to put out there for people to look out in terms of the zoo, in terms of, like, a website up or, or anything along those lines where people could kind of keep track of, uh, you know, what you're working on? I mean, I, I know, obviously, the YouTube channel, so maybe you could comment on that as well. Uh, well, yeah, so um, with the zoo, Sydney Zoo, um, so sydneyzoo.com, the website is, uh, at the moment, the website's kind of like a, like it's not fully developed, but the website is probably going to be going live in a new format in the next couple of weeks. So, and, and also our Facebook page, the Sydney Zoo Facebook page, it's got an orange and black logo. So if you, if you look up Sydney Zoo on Facebook and you see the one that's got the orange and black logo, um, click on that. Uh, if, you, if you click like, you'll get notifications. And we have update videos on a regular basis showing the progress. You can also go back and have a look. At some stage, I'll probably put together uh, a video of the reptile house, the progress of the reptile house, and how it's how it's looking and how it got to be where it is. Um, and as far as my my YouTube thing, Crocdoc Two, um, on on YouTube, that's C R O C D O C Two. I it's kind of I mean there's still some videos up there, but it's been slow in activity at the moment, but give it a few months and then I'll be back into it. 
I've got a, quite a number of videos planned, not just um, not just modern music. I've got a, quite a few other things planned, some not even necessarily even reptile related. One of the things I would like to do in the near future is do a video on the Heath monitors, the Rosenberg. I've got a lot of footage and photographs of them nesting in the wild, including hatchlings coming out of the termite mounds. And if you've ever seen a picture of a Heath monitor hatchling, they're really spectacular. They're bright orange in color. And so I've got uh, videos of them coming out of the termite mound. So it'll be quite, a, quite an interesting video. I've been collecting footage and, and um, collecting material, going out in the field and photographing and videoing things for the past uh, eight or so years. I missed last, last season because I've been busy with the zoo, but I've been collecting material for a long time and giving talks to herb societies here in Australia. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to putting together a YouTube video and sort of getting it out there. No, it's definitely exciting. I'm really looking forward to, to those videos. Those are going to be great videos. Um, so, so thanks for that. Um, JD, what are your thoughts? Uh, I want to thank David for coming on. It's been an awesome show, David, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks so much, David. You have a great day. You too. Have a great evening. Thank you. Uh, that, that was a great show, Josh. David, such a he's such a knowledgeable person. It's amazing. You know, definitely, David has a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience, and I'm sure he could have went on, you know, for a very, very long time talking about all the different things he knows about. But, but you know, maybe um, we'll be fortunate enough to have it on again, and we could talk about more stuff. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Uh, you know, and actually, this this show is kind of going to be the start of a of Ranophiles. So we're going to have some shows coming up for the more monitor lizards. And uh, next week we got Mr. Fabio uh, Morrissey on from the Coxus. So that would be a cool show. We haven't talked to him for a while. And uh, I actually think he just came back from uh, Costa Rica, I believe. Oh, Costa Rica is a, it's an interesting place for a lot of different herbs. So it would be nice to really hear about what he has to say. And Flavio always has a uh, nice information and good stories. So. Oh yeah, Quackfest does a, you know a lot of good and stuff. I know they raised a lot of money for the Indian burial this last year, so uh, you know it's interesting to hear about their conservation. You know what they're going to back and what they're going to help out the species. So yeah, it'll be really cool having them on, and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Alrighty, perfect. Thanks, Shady. Honey, your pet broke out again. Oh man, I guess it's time for a new custom cages enclosure. Custom cages, safe, strong, and dependable reptile enclosures.